Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Islamic Dilemma. I am your host, Al Fadi. Joining me here in studio today, my special guest, Bill Warner. Bill, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Uh, last time, uh, we spent at least one episode trying to clarify uh, the uh, Sharia law for our viewers. Mm -hmm. And I want to summarize uh, what we covered so far so that our viewers can at least follow along. Uh, we basically identified Sharia law as a code of conduct. Right. It is a set of rules and laws and regulations that classify a multiple issues dealing with rituals, business transactions and business law, uh, belief as apostasy, uh, punishments, uh, and many other things, basically. And we mentioned that these set of rules that are Islamic in nature consider themselves to be superior over the law of the land. And uh, one of the other important aspects of Sharia law uh, that we discussed is that, that it draws its foundation and its sources uh, uh, for its elements and tenets from two primary sources, and one was the Quran. And I want to uh, again give a definition of what the Quran is. The Quran is the, uh, the term means recitation, but recitation of what? It's basically uh, the word of Allah, the God of Islam, that was recited verbatim to the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, and he in turn memorized it and recited it back to his followers. In other words, the Quran we have today is the word of God and that's the number one source that Sharia law will draw from. And then we have the conduct of the Prophet himself, his lifestyle, his biography called the Sirah, and his sayings, the traditions of the things that he has done that Muslims are sometimes commanded to follow and sometimes encouraged to follow. So you have his lifestyle in general as a role model. So these are the primary sources. We also mentioned two additional sources. We call them secondary sources. One is the consensus of the Islamic scholars, an agreement on something, and they would issue what we called fatwa bill. And mm -hmm. fatwa basically is a becoming a household uh, <laughs> uh, you know, terminology these days. And uh, I gave an example last time of what a fatwa uh, might look like. I'm going to give another example right now so that people can follow along of what exactly we mean. This fatwa actually uh, uh, had to deal with a, someone in Germany, but it was issue, issued by uh, an Islamic scholar or a mufti. Uh, the, the word mufti is stemming from fatwa. It's someone who can issue a decree. Right. And uh, he's located basically at least at that time, at the time the fatwa was issued in the year 2002, uh, he was uh, located in uh, uh, Camperdown, South Africa. And here's the question. It says this, I am a 45-year-old married man. Uh, and uh, uh, I want to basically uh, marry a 15 years old, and I do have sexual desires after her. I ask my wife if I can marry her, and my wife basically told me that uh, the age difference might cause me some problem. So I would like to basically ask you, Mr. Mufti, to uh, share with me your d decision about this. Here's the response that you say, according to Sharia, if a girl is a minor and did not attain her puberty yet, and in this case, uh, I believe he's referring uh, either to 15 or 12 years old, you know, he mentioned both, uh, she may be given in marriage by her father. So if she is, let's assume she's 10, 11, 12, 13, even 15, maybe she did not yet 
uh, uh, reach uh, the age of puberty, she's considered to be a minor. Her father can basically give her away in marriage. And the gentleman who asked the question says that both the girl and her father agreed to this marriage. And the response was, as long as they both agreed, then there should be no problem. So this is an example of what we called a fatwa. So basically, he is issuing a fatwa from South Africa using Sharia law to someone who lives in Germany, even if the German law prohibits an action like this. Mm -hmm. And this is a sample of what we mean that Sharia law will trump the exactly. law of the <laughs> land. And finally, we talked about uh, a last secondary source, and we called it the analogy, and that's to take an existing known law or code of conduct or a punishment found in the Quran and the Hadith and try to draw, use it as a basis for a parallel decision mm -hmm. for another crime or another conduct or action that actually was not mentioned in either the Hadith or the Quran. Bill, let me ask you this question. I'm going to try to play the devil's advocate. Uh, isn't uh, Sharia law basically something that deals with religion only and has nothing to do with politics at all? This is a common defense, and as a matter of fact, I have seen this trotted out when any time a legislature wants to limit Sharia in some way, which is beginning to happen at the state level. The, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and other Muslim public figures go, oh, you're discriminating against us. This is only about religion. You're trying to keep us from praying. You, you, you want to make it illegal for us to even wash our feet before we pray. And, but this is all a shadow game because the prayer part, no one cares about outside of Islam. So, but this is what's trotted out. Oh, it's just religion. It's just religion. And furthermore, the First Amendment, if it's in America, is drug out to say, we have the Sharia law in full practice. We should be allowed because it's just our religious law. But it's much more than religious law. Uh, Bill, b before we even proceed further, I want my viewers to know where can they go and get information about Sharia law? Obviously, the intent of our show is to help our viewers who do not speak Arabic. Right. That's the number one right. uh, uh, you know, goal of our show. Where can they go and get this information in English mm -hmm. so that they can follow along and do their own studies and maybe even lobby uh, uh, for or against mm -hmm. Sharia law? Here, uh, you know, we're trying to allow people to see for themselves what Sharia teaches, and we want to provide them with right. some useful resources for them. If you like big books, a source text is The Reliance of the Traveler, which can be bought on Amazon. But take a look. This is a big, thick book. Now, part of what I do in life, I tell people, is I read big, thick books, and I turn out little bitty books. So if you want to see the, how thin this one is, we can have here, this is an introduction to Sharia law for non-Muslims, and it can be found on my website, politicalislam.com. And then there's halfway in between, and Al has a copy of this. Yes, and this is what is called the Sharia, the threat to America. And it's actually put together by a team called the Team B2, and it's called Report by Team B2. It's a government, actually, report uh, that was put together by specific analysts right. and a security analysts, uh, researchers. Right. Uh, this is also available online. People can just type up the name, and they can find the whole document, actually, in a PDF format. And I, too, like to simplify things and take big information and uh, put it in, in a way that is easy for people to read. Uh, you can go to my blog, the 
Quranic, uh, I mean the QuranDilemma.com, and you can find a number of articles there that deal with parts of Sharia law, and also I'll be posting another specific multi-part uh, article in the coming weeks that has to do with Sharia law. Uh, we hope that all of these resources uh, will help our viewers to at least continue on uh, with their research. Uh, before even we proceed with our discussion about Sharia law, I would like to show more examples of what the Quran teaches, for, in mm -hmm. uh, for instance, about uh, freedom of religion, for instance. Uh, if someone decides to leave Islam, Bill, what is their punishment? I am one of those people who left Islam. It's death, fundamentally, and we know this both from history. The first caliph, Abu Bakr, what was his biggest political job? War against the apostates. And, of course, he went and fought them because they decided that they want to leave Islam. That doesn't sound to me that there is freedom of religion under well, this. It's not only freedom of religion. When we look at it closer, we'll see that this is actually freedom of thought. In some sense, the apostasy laws in Islam represent the most controlling possible aspect. That is, human thought is not supposed to reach its own conclusions and its own, from its own reasoning. I like to quote a, a dear friend of, of mine, a brother in the Lord, who, uh, whom I heard him say this. You are free as a Muslim person to stay in Islam and live, or you are free to live and die. Exactly. So that's as close as you can get to freedom in Islam. In fact, I want to support some of this from, uh, uh, you know, the Quran. Here is a slide, and this is a verse that is coming basically from uh, the Quran. It says, anyone who, after accepting faith in Allah, utters unbelief, except under compulsion, basically, his heart remaining firm in faith, but such as an open their hearts to unbelief, on them is the wrath from Allah, and theirs will be a dreadful penalty. So, what is the dreadful penalty? If the we go now us. to uh, the next slide and we see what the Prophet is saying, the Prophet is saying in a hadith that we used earlier, it says, it is not lawful to shed the blood of a Muslim except for one of three sins, and one of those sins is the sin of treason. Notice it's called treason. It has a political condemnation to it, meaning if a person renounces Islam and thus leaving the community to join the enemy camp in order to wage war against the faithful. Notice, by leaving Islam, this is a political treason. Mm -hmm. You are uh, automatically assumed to be part of the enemy camp. Right. And once you are part of the enemy camp, it is believed now the enemy's intent is to destroy Islam, whether you do it or not. Right. So this means that people in Europe, in the U.S., and in any other non-Islamic countries are classified as such, enemies of Islam, and their intent is to destroy Islam. In fact, I want to add another piece of information, and you probably have read this before. Islam actually divides the whole universe into two houses, the house of peace and the house of war. Bill, if you've done any studies on that, would you like to elaborate on this? The house of war is against, the word I like to use instead of unbeliever is kafir, because by my very unwillingness to admit that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah, I have committed an enormous crime. It's not just a sin. These are, these are political statements. Why? I just don't believe that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah, therefore I am the enemy 
of Islam. And things can be done to me as an enemy that are dreadful. I mean, I can be harmed for simply doing what I'm doing here with you, discussing ideas based on Islamic doctrine. But I thought Islam is a religion of peace. Why would you fear for your life? Well, in Islam, peace comes only after you accept Islam. In fact, I want to support what you're saying. Uh, one of the verses that are found in chapter 9 of the Quran, verse 29, states it clearly that anyone who does not follow the religion of Islam, does not believe in the God of Islam, does not believe in the messenger of Islam, does not prohibit what Islam prohibits, even if they were followers of other books, other scriptures, Christians and Jews, for instance, that they must be fought. Yes. And fighting here is physical unless they agree to submit and surrender. So either way, there is no freedom. Precisely. Precisely. Moving right along here, I'd like to show also other examples. Uh, democracy, for instance. Uh, here is one of the uh, well-known muftis of the Muslim Brotherhoods. His name is Yusuf al-Qaradawi, and of course, uh, you can always read this, these quotations uh, on uh, one of these resources that we mentioned to you. And uh, uh, regarding democracy, this is what he says. The Sharia cannot be amended to conform to changing human values and standards. Rather, it is the absolute, notice the word absolute, in other words, that Muslims actually cannot make any changes to it. And it's the absolute norm to which all human values, that means Muslims and non-Muslims, and conduct for Muslims and non-Muslims must conform. So your conduct bill under Sharia law right now does not conform to what Islam teaches. No, and I can suffer a penalty for that. But we come back to, it's incredible that Sharia law, its purpose is to rule over me whether I like it or not. Well, Bill, uh, we are approaching our halftime break. When we come back, we will continue our discussion about the implications of Sharia law on others who are non-Muslims or at least people who live outside of the Islamic community. Pressure slowly building. An explosion that shocked the world. A coastline forever changed. The oil impossible to remove. Nothing could destroy it until the source was found, until that source was sealed. To uncover the source of Islamic terror, read the Quran Dilemma, Islam Unplugged. Uh, welcome back to our uh, Islamic Dilemma show. Uh, myself and uh, my special guest, Bill Warner, uh, have been discussing in the first part of our show uh, some of the implications of Islamic Sharia law uh, in terms of uh, implications that deal with uh, freedom of religion and uh, freedom of choice and s things of that nature. And, and Bill, we were talking about democracy under Islamic law and we basically decided, based on the evidence that we presented, that um, Sharia law looks at itself as the law that must be followed. The supreme law. Basically, it is not a law that will be modified right. or will conform to other laws or other needs. 
everything else must conform to Sharia law. But I, I felt, Bill, that Sharia law is actually fluid and it evolves and it changes. This is something that Muslims say in public. The reason they say this in public is our doing this show is indicative of something. The world is beginning to be aware of Sharia. And the more it looks at Sharia, the more disturbed it becomes. And so Muslims come out and sort of to put oil on the water and, and to say, oh, well, this is, you're paying attention to things that are not that important. And so one of the things they say is, well, we're, it's flexible, really. And there is flexibility within Sharia because we have adaptation that can be done through analogy. But no matter what Sharia wants to change, the core doctrine cannot be changed. And so, yes, there can be change in Sharia, but it's like a planet going around the sun. And this sun is Muhammad and Allah. So uh, what you're saying, Bill, I mean, I want to clarify. When we're saying that Sharia, yes, does make changes, those changes are driven by the time, not by changing the core values. The core values cannot change. So I want to give an illustration. We're not talking about Sharia law changing the law against apostates. That will always be the death penalty. Cannot change. But if we're dealing with a crime, and I mentioned earlier, like drugs or drug use or drug mm -hmm. dealing, because it's something that evolved recently, uh, then basically Islamic law may look into how to deal with it. That's a change. Right. For instance, there might be adapt Sharia to computer-based crime. Exactly. Internet use. Yeah. Uh, let's let's even use the uh, social media and what's going on in the Middle East lately. Some of the Islamic countries actually banned the use of social media under the uh, basically the precept that it uh, violates uh, the law of the land and it causes a danger to the national security. Now that's something we're talking about that can illustrate what we just mentioned. Right. But we want to also emphasize that Sharia law may appear to be fluid and changing. The changes we're talking about has to do with just changes in society and time and location, but the core teachings will never change, will always Cannot remain change. the same. And I used also that quotation from one of the Muslim Brotherhood spiritual leaders, uh, Al-Qaradawi, and we said that that's exactly what he stated. In fact, I want to show also our viewers the motto of the Muslim Brotherhoods, which, by the way, you can find on their website. It's not like something that you have to uh, search for it. Uh, their motto is this, the organization's motto is... Allah, meaning the God of Islam, mm -hmm. is our objective. The Prophet, Muhammad, is our leader. The Quran is our law. And that's now where it's important. That relates to Sharia law. Sharia. That's where the law comes from. Not to mention what they say, jihad is our way and dying in the way of God is our highest hope. Highest hope. Mm -hmm. But that's for another episode. <laughs> now, uh, Bill, are there... A lot of countries in the world that uh, basically utilize Sharia law that you know of? Well, this is another thing when Muslims come out and people are starting to learn about Sharia, they go, well, Sharia is not really that important. Why? There's no country in the world which is ruled by Sharia. And you think, well, isn't Saudi? And then the excuse comes, well, no, there's French law and British law and all sorts of law that rules Saudi. So they try to once again say that <laughs> Sharia is really not important. Don't look behind the curtain. Don't look at Sharia. As a 
someone from Saudi Arabia, I can assure you that there are no other laws other than Sharia law that rules Saudi. Do you mean my local Muslim Brotherhood deceived me? I'm not going to accuse anyone of deceiving <laughs> you, but uh, let's uh, try to be fair to them and say maybe they lack information <laughs> or at least uh, they need to go and do their own research. And this is really what's frustrating sometimes is like no matter what kind of resources are used to prove, even if we use Quranic verses, mm -hmm. to prove that the information we're offering, we're providing is actually built upon solid sources, which is not our own opinion. We're always faced with this dilemma that we're given multiple opinions and we're given uh, basically what I call the sanitized version of Islam that you only hear uh, in Western nations. But if you go back home to the Middle East, to Saudi, to other Islamic countries, you get the real uh, uh, you know, opinion about Islam. So which Islam are we following? Are there two Islams here or is it one Islam? <laughs> well, I guess we could say there's two Islams. There's the one that you and I bring forth, and then there's the covering, which are the honeyed words of an apologist for Islam. Let me give you an example. This is from my personal life. I gave a lecture on Sharia law that lasted for 45 minutes. I then answered questions for an hour. There was a young Muslim. He was a convert in the crowd. The newspaper, convert to Islam. A convert to Islam. The newspaper reporter gave me about one column inch in the reporting of my talk. He went to this Muslim convert and reported everything this convert said as this is the truth about Sharia law. Even though my lecture is like what we're doing here, Quran, Sirah, Hadith, quotes, it is as though there are two Islams. The factual Islam, which is not wanting to be seen, and then there's the honeyed words of the apologist. I, I, and Bill, this is a, a very crucial uh, uh, topic here, and, and I myself also sometimes wonder, why does the media look the other way when it comes to Islam? I, I, I don't have an answer, because what we're doing here, for instance, is what has to be done. You and I are bringing out not opinions, but facts about the doctrine. They exist. They're clear. They're easy to find, and yet the media has the attitude of, we see, no. We hear, no. I mean, sometimes I'd like to, I like to give the media the benefit of the doubt and stating that maybe they respect the freedom of choice and freedom of religion and freedom of opinion, but the problem is you're dealing with a religion that doesn't believe in any of these freedoms. I basically. thought the media should be dealing with truth and facts, but I'm confused, obviously. Uh, Bill, you know, uh, again, playing uh, as a devil's advocate here. You know, you go to the Old Testament and there are laws in there. So mm -hmm. what's the difference between the laws or the Jewish law, for instance, and the Islamic law? I mean, aren't they the same? Well, this is again, I've heard Muslim apologists say, well, nobody's raising a ruckus about Jewish law, which is just religious law. Why are you fussing about the Sharia, which is just religious law? Well, Sharia is not just religious law because the Jewish law does not try to make any dictates to the non-Jew. It really, and furthermore, Jewish law goes ahead to say that Jewish law is under the law of the land. Indeed, Jews are to pray for the political success of the country they're in. This is radically different from Sharia law, which is here actually to replace the law in America. Now, right now, it's just the thin end of the wedge but it is the longest wedge in the world.
So are you saying that if I were to go to the Old Testament and look at uh, the, the behavior of the Jews and the commands given to them and their law, uh, am I going to depict that they are supreme over other nations? No, and a Jew would never tell you that. Okay, in fact, I want to uh, add to what you're saying. You're going to go to the Old Testament and read even the prophets in there, and you'll see that God punished his own people, the Jews, simply because they thought they were superior over others. They assumed that they are better than others, that they did not share the truth about who God is with others. As a result, they suffered themselves punishment, mm -hmm. exile. Uh, the northern kingdom was destroyed, and till this day, it's no longer uh, right. back again. Only the uh, Judah, the southern kingdom that survived from that day forward. I want to show uh, an example of how Islam actually teaches its followers. This is really crucial and important to pay attention to because it plays into the psychology of the Muslim mind. Now, this verse comes from chapter 3, verse 85. It says, Whoever desires a religion other than Islam, it shall not be accepted from him, and in the hereafter he shall be one of the losers. Now, this comes straight from the Quran. Now, as a follower of Islam, you're going to think this. Only Islam is accepted, mm -hmm. therefore I'm going to look down at anyone else who is a loser that Islam. doesn't follow Islam. Now, what about me as a Muslim? How do I view people around me who are non-Muslim? This is another troubling verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 110. It says, you, meaning Muslims, are the best of peoples evolved for mankind. I mean, this is superiority, basically. This is supremacy. Mm -hmm. This is a language that is divine that telling you, even though I created all mankind, I consider you to be superior over everybody else. Now, someone might say, well, yeah, that's fine. I mean, they're still going to treat me well. They're going to view me as a human uh, being. Well, let me show you the next verse. The next verse, or verses actually, says this in chapter 98, verse 6, says this. The non-Muslims are the most vile mm -hmm. of created beings. In chapter 48, verse 29 says, Muslims must be merciful to one another, to other Muslims, but ruthless to the unbelievers. That's me. How do you feel about <laughs> this, Bill? I feel dreadful. I mean, simply for waking up in the morning, I'm wrong. And I should be suppressed. And another thing about this that's very disturbing, there's some 11 or 12 verses in the Quran which state that a Muslim is not really my friend. This is highly disturbing. Well, uh, I mean, there are so many things that are taught basically in Islam that are very troubling. Mm -hmm. And the Quran has, I mean, these three or four verses that we used are just a sample. And I emphasize, it's a sample of a doctrine that is found in the pages of the Quran that is considered to be the number one source for Sharia law, the number one source for the conduct of a Muslim, the number one source that a Muslim person who have any hope, any hope whatsoever to please his God is to follow. If you are a true Muslim, I want you to be honest with yourself right now and ask yourself this. Is there anything that we have just mentioned is not true? Mm -hmm. Go to the Quran and see it for yourself. Second, I want you to ask yourself. You probably, if you're living in the West, have friends who are non-Muslims. I'm sure they're your friends because they're wonderful people. They're nice people. They're kind people. In my case, it was a wonderful Christian family that opened my eyes to the truth about Islam. Ask yourself, 
What gives you the right to hate them? Mm. What gives you the right to try to annihilate them? What gives you the right to treat them as inferior to you? What about the equality? Aren't they all created in the eye of God to be equal? In fact, the Bible teaches that man and woman are created in the image of God, in His image, basically, to be in the likeness of God, in their attitude, in mm -hmm. their character, in their love. So I'm not so sure that what we have shared so far gives me any peace of mind or comfort. If I am someone who is a not follower of Islam, I must run for my life. Precisely. Bill, once again, unfortunately, we approach the end of our uh, episode. This is definitely an exciting topic. I'd like to invite you again to a follow-up show to certainly. continue uh, our discussion uh, about Sharia law. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I encourage you again to go to our website that will be shown to you right now on the screen. Please share with us via email your questions, your thoughts, and your comments. Until our next episode, have a mega blessed day.